Well, good morning again. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you today? It was freezing on the way over here, like literally freezing this morning. Were you guys in icy roads? No, it warmed up. Good news, it warmed up a bit since oh dark 30 when we arrive. Um, I have announcements for you, and I'm going to take my cues from James back there in the booth. Um, we are looking forward to next Sunday. Anyone and everyone, if you are newer to Brookview, so there's no time frame on that. If you've come to this lunch before, sorry, I can't come again. If we really, really know you, you're out. It's for people that are newer to Brookview because we want a chance to get to know you a little bit and just share a meal with you. There really is not an agenda outside of connecting and hanging out together. That happens right after church in the downstairs building. And um, if you can come to that, we would love to make sure we have enough food for you. And you can do so by filling out your online communication card at brookviewchurch.com or texting the word lunch to that Brookview number. And you'll notice when you send that lunch message, it'll push something to you that asks you for your name. Oftentimes that's very anonymous and we have no idea who you are, how to get back to you outside of that text app. So it'll, it'll say, hey, what's your name and how many people are coming with you, including kids? So if you can reply to that text that gets pushed to you, like even in this moment, my pocket's not ringing yet, folks. Get going. Just kidding. Um, okay, the next announcement is our life groups. Those are happening. They are on a quarter system here at Brookview. And so our spring quarter runs from March, the week of March 20th, through about the end of May, sometimes the first or second week in June. And if you are not a part of a community where you are walking alongside of other people and kind of just leaning into what is this whole following Jesus thing um, and what is going on in my own life that I want to connect with other people about, we just highly encourage you to do that. Um, those are kind of the lifeblood of what goes on around here. There is no way for you to feel really known and people to know your story and for you to invest your life in theirs if we simply all just come to church on Sunday. This is a great way to learn and to connect but that deeper connection happens in community. So sign up for a life group if you're able to do that. And you can do that by texting the word group or signing up on your online communication card. Spring clean. Can I get a whoop whoop? Jane, do you feel it? You feel it, don't you? It's like spring training is happening. Mariners are off. Okay. Spring clean, we like to spend just one day together, a few hours, four to be exact, and just kind of deep cleaning this place once a year. And with the idea that, you know, we make messes and we sort of clean the surfaces, but don't really get, uh, you know, some elbow grease in there. And this is family friendly. So if you are like, I wanna teach my kids how to help out and how to serve and how to wash their tables in their kids' church classrooms and take ownership of their spaces, it's a really cool thing that you can do together as a family as well. So will you come to that? We're gonna feed you. Um, there's outdoor work to do, there's indoor work to do, and when you come, you'll just kind of be directed to the, the needs that we have, and you kind of get to choose if I want to be inside or outside. Um, and, okay, yeah, we're feeding you lunch, so we need to know generally how many people are coming. Yes, I've got a hand up. Oh, well, that's a Saturday. What we got going here? Sa oh, the 18th. Yeah, that's the wrong slide. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that's my bad. Okay, March 18th. Everyone say that with me. March 18th. Not this Saturday. The next Saturday. Almost two weeks from now. I'm so sorry. The live stream has the correct one? I know exactly what I did, actually. Okay. There's some new technology that we're trying out for the live stream, and I am not firing on all cylinders yet. It takes a few weeks. So please forgive me. March 18th, I'm glad that all of you that are watching from home actually get to see that. Um, all of us are in the dark here. 10 to noon, uh, 2, 10 to 2, 10 to 2, Saturday. <laughs> Woo! Woo, this is rough. Right, Rebecca? You hear me? All right. Um, I said we're feeding you lunch. 
will you RSVP so that we get a general idea of how many people we're feeding for that as well. Text the word SPRING to the Brookview number or there's a spot to sign up for it on your online communication card. And speaking of your communication card, we love hearing from you. And so if you go to brookviewchurch.com and click on contact, there will be a spot for you to fill out that digital connect card. And so looking forward to hearing from you this week. My document's not here. Oh, man. Where did it go? Oh, you guys, this has never happened. Okay. All right. I am. Did you? I'm going to have to, like, download it real quick. Jen, do something awesome. There we go. What do you have going on there? I will, I don't know. I heard some things in the Oh my gosh, that's what you were just springing into action. I'm your technical that's so good. You know what else I like when you're giving announcements how you find a friendly face and you just focus in there Jane and yeah. So good. Well, we seem to be working so I, you are dismissed. All right. <laughs> <laughs> if you're visiting with us, yes, it is always this seamless, every time. You guys, several years ago, I, I heard a brilliant comparison between cats and dogs. And uh, just curious, I, I always want to get a lay of the land with our church. Like, if you would say, I'm, I'm more of a dog person, would you raise your hand? Okay, whoa, oh. Woof. <laughs> All right, if you say, no, I'm more of a cat person. Uh, okay. Meow. <laughs> All right, if you're like, I just really like both, get both hands up. I, I just like animals, love it, hair all over, it's great. <laughs> so, okay, uh, I, I heard this brilliant, I think brilliant comparison between cats and dogs years ago. Such a great illustration of the difference in their mentality and their demeanors. Uh, it goes like this. A dog looks at you and thinks, wow, you feed me, you groom me, you, you pet me, you clean up my poop. You must be God. A cat says, you feed me, you groom me, you pet me, you clean up my poop. I must be God. <laughs> right, Kayla? Yes, yeah, sir. Kayla and I had beef, like, when she, for her very first week, I made fun of cats, and she's like a cat person. She's like, I was almost out of here. <laughs> she tolerated that one, though. You guys, a few years back, 1991, so for if you're younger, that's way back. If you're older, that's like a few years back. A guy named Ernest Kurtz wrote what has kind of become the definitive history of the AA movement, okay, Alcoholics Anonymous. And he named his book, Not God, because he said the fundamental problem alcoholics have is that way down deep, they refuse to acknowledge limitation. They tend to live under the delusion that they are in control of everything, when in reality, they can't even control themselves. And so, he writes, fundamental to the recovery process is that healing and sanity begin with a single realization that I am not God. As simple as it sounds, healing begins with the realization that I am not in control of my universe, 
that I have weakness and I have limitations and I need help from a power greater than myself. Okay, I'm not God. Now this, you know, I'm God syndrome is obviously not limited to alcoholics. It's, it's a part of all of us, right? It started in the garden and the serpent says to the woman, when you eat this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like what? Like God. Saying, you, you know what, you can be the master of your own universe. You don't have to bend the knee. You don't have to surrender to anyone, depend on anyone, be accountable to anyone. You will be like God. And this is the building block of spiritual confusion. And so now at recovery meetings, they always begin with just a simple reminder of sanity. You know, like, my name is Jason, and I'm an alcoholic, right? Meaning, I have weaknesses and limitations, and I need a help from a power greater than myself because I am not God. So this is the third week in this series, Exile, a Creative Minority. And the basic idea is that we are now living in a new cultural moment. Over the past decades, there has been a tectonic shift in our culture, and we are now living in a full-on post-Christian world. And as we've seen, the the challenge for those of us who want to follow, follow Jesus is to stay rooted, right? To stay rooted to Jesus and stay rooted to who we are, to not just be engulfed by the values and the practices of the dominant culture, But then also, at the same time, to not just isolate and hold up, to engage that culture, right? To become a creative minority, which is language from Jonathan Sachs. He writes, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are part. So we're rooting much of this series in the Old Testament story of of Daniel, right? These four exiles that are ripped out of Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. And so they're now navigating a whole new culture that is hostile to their faith and their ways and everything that they know to be good and true. So we've spent a couple of weeks, the last couple of weeks in Daniel chapter one. You guys were ready to move on. Are you excited about that? Good, that was a little more enthusiastic than last week. (laughs) I I appreciate that. So we're on to chapter two. You guys ready to roll? Here we go. Chapter two, verse one. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Now notice, this is like the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and he is a dictator king of the most powerful empire on the face of the earth at the time. So he is reigning over the known world with unchallenged authority. Like his strength, his wealth, his fame, and power are unparalleled. He is a god. That's how people think of him, and that's how he thinks of himself. But he's a God who can't sleep. He's a God with insomnia. He has a troubling dream, so he calls all of his advisors together to decode his dream for him. Verse 4, then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Question. How good were his advisors at reminding him that he was not God? Not so good. Like, be eternal, king. May you never die. Like, in our day, when people live under this sort of I'm God delusion, we have names for it, right? We say they suffer from a Messiah complex or delusions of grandeur. Um, And we're about to, to, to see another characteristic that accompanies this syndrome, Um, Human development experts uh, occasionally rate emotional maturity uh, based on something called frustration tolerance. Some people can exercise, some people have this ability to exercise patience and poise even when their goals are blocked, right? While other people are emotionally explosive and impulsive and rash and frantic. So let's check out how Nebuchadnezzar uh, Nebuchadnezzar deals with some frustration. Verse 5. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. 
if you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Question, would that be high or low frustration tolerance? <laughs> like executing people when they can't read your mind, that would be like low frustration tolerance. He's, he's disturbed by this dream and he is convinced that it has some kind of meaning. And so he says, I'm not gonna tell you my dream because you could make up anything and tell me that it's the interpretation. But if you are able to tell me my dream, then I can trust your analysis. So tell me my dream and interpret it for me right now or I'll cut you into pieces and burn your houses to rubble. Verse six, but, but if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon, so the decree was issued and put, to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Here is a man with full-blown I'm God syndrome. He wants to control every, everything. He, he, he submits to no one. He feels entitled to have everything go his way. In fact, he must have everything go his way, or he's going to make sure there's hell to pay for everybody else. Here's the thing, we're gonna see a, we're gonna see a great contrast in this story. We, we see this king who has it all, right? Power, wealth, fame, prestige, but he's haunted by these uncontrollable emotions, and yet we're about to see Daniel, a Jewish exile taken to Babylon in chains, a young man who, by human standards, has lost everything. Uh, a person who's been tossed around like, like a boat in a hurricane, and so he has no delusions about being master of his own universe. Daniel is sitting around, he's minding his own business, and suddenly a commander shows up to put Daniel and his friends to death. Now we saw last week that by this point in the story, they are now considered wise men in Babylon. So look at how Daniel reacts to the news, verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch ex then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. Yeah, they did concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now contrast that with the reaction of the Babylonian wise men, right? They, they get the demand, tell me my dream and interpret it or you're all dead, and they just immediately give up. They're like, we're hosed, right? We're, we're doomed, this is impossible. Now keep in mind, these guys are not atheists, right? They believe in a spiritual realm but they do not believe in a God that's good and powerful and present. What the king asks is too difficult. This is beyond our capacity, so we are left without hope. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and the gods do not live among humans. And this really is the great issue. This is the great separator between the Babylonian magicians and astrologers and Daniel and his friends. It comes down to a simple question. Does God live among us? Does he know what's happening? Does he care? 
is God able to intervene or is everything up to me? And I don't know about you, but far more often than I'd like, I live like the astrologers. Like I'm a follower of Jesus. And you're like, you are? I am. <laughs> and, and I believe in a good God that's present. And I believe that God can and does intervene on earth, and yet I tend to live as if everything is up to me. I have to solve this. I have to fix this. And if I can't manage it, I'm host. But I've discovered that there, there's this amazing peace and power when I begin to acknowledge my limits. Now, I do have some influence, right? And so do you. I have some influence, and so we have, we have some say-so in this world, but it's restricted. There is so much that I can't control, and there's so much that we can't control. Like, we can't control our boss. We can't control our spouse. Can't control the economy. We can't control the traffic. Right? We can't, can't, we can't control the decisions that our kids make. We can't even completely control our health. Like, we're all just one bad doctor's report away from a life changing in, a, in an instant. And, and Daniel had been made painfully aware of his lack of control. He'd, he'd been stripped of virtually everything. I mean, home, family, culture, his dreams, everything. But deep down, his feet were planted on a different foundation. The foundation was this, that God is real, that God is good, and that God is always at work. So Daniel goes to the king and he asks for a tiny bit of time. Just give me a little time and I'll interpret the dream. Then he organizes an all-night prayer vigil with all of his friends. And with their lives at stake, I would imagine that they prayed enthusiastically. So during the night, verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what, I, what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to, to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Notice Arioch's framing. O king, I have found a man among the exiles. Everyone thought this was hopeless, and then me. Right? This is what we call spin control. Arioch wants in on the credit. Like he's clamoring, he's climbing, he's manipulating. Um, how many of you have ever worked with an Arioch? It's so annoying, right? Now contrast that with Daniel. There's no climbing, no spin, no manipulation. Check out the tone of this exchange that he has with Nebuchadnezzar. Since the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he, he asked about. Uh-oh. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so your majesty may know the interpretation and you may understand what went through your mind. So before Daniel tells the king, his dream, and explains it, Daniel gives credit where credit is due. He says, king, I, I'm not any wiser than anybody else. It's just that the God of heaven is revealing this thing to you because he wants for you to know. God is the revealer. God is the miracle worker. 
I'm simply the messenger. There's no ladder climbing or self-promotion here. In fact, and I think this is kind of cool with Daniel, we see another example of his humility. If we jump down to verse 36, um, after explaining the dream, which we're about to see him explain, Daniel says, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. So Daniel goes on, he describes the dream, which we'll get to in just a second, but before he begins the interpretation, he says, and now we will interpret it to the king. Why say we? Well, Daniel seems to be grouping his friends into this, like spreading the credit around. He seems to be grouping his friends in that had gathered, and and when this challenge arose, his friends that prayed all night for God to move, right? Daniel received from God the dream and the interpretation, but in his mind, his praying friends deserve just as much credit as he does. Daniel has this, like, really authentic humility. He just wants other people to, to be in on the blessing. And you know what? I don't know about you, I am drawn to people like that. You want to give me the credit? Sweet. I'm in. <laughs> and honestly, people who, who behave like that, that deep down, that's who I want to be, right? But it starts with getting real clear that, that I'm not God. The world doesn't revolve around me, and I'm far from in control. Daniel has to let go of self a promotion and image management, and now, now comes the dream. And this dream is this dream's kind of epic. So try to visualize the best that you can what Daniel's describing here. He says, here's the dream. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, now Daniel's just explained the dream. Imagine the angst in the room. All eyes are on the king, right? Uh, Is that the dream? (laughs) Is Daniel right, right? Or are we all about to die? So in amazement, Nebuchadnezzar's like, that's it. Like he's that, right? That's exactly it, right? So, So go on. Daniel does. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. So Daniel emphasizes the extent of Nebuchadnezzar's dominion. He rules all mankind and all creatures on earth. He is the head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar, I have to imagine, is like, go on. (laughs) Right? After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. You guys got that? In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. 
So Daniel prophesied that human kingdoms would rise and fall and rise and fall and come and go. And one day, in the middle of all of these dynasties, a kingdom would emerge, a vision. And this is a vision of the inbreaking kingdom of God into our world. Now, Daniel wouldn't live to see it, and neither would centuries of people to follow. And so, for hundreds of years, they would wonder, will what Daniel prophesied ever come? And then one day, about 600 years after Daniel, a no-name carpenter from, a, from an obscure town called Nazareth went around healing people and doing miracles of all kinds and announcing, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is here. And he began a movement that has outlasted kingdoms, empires, and dynasties. Like between Daniel and, and us, the Babylonian Empire came and went. The Persian Empire came and went. The Greek Empire came and went. The Roman Empire came and went. And many, many others. I mean, in truth, numerous human empires have come and they have gone. And sometimes people get really concerned about which empire is which in Daniel. Like which kingdom is the silver, right? And which one is the bronze? And it, uh, which one is iron? And, and, but here's the thing. We're not actually ever told in Scripture. And to be honest with you, it isn't really the point. The point is, there's a king, and he's come, and he is unlike any other. And he has started something real and powerful and beautiful. He has ushered in, into earth, a different kind of kingdom. And that kingdom will grow, and it will expand, and it will last for all of eternity. He is the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. And what makes this prophecy even, I think, just more unusual is who it came to. I mean, God, this is a grand vision for what God is going to do in human history, yes? And God gives this vision to a king that worshiped his own Babylonian gods. A king that, in a way, was convinced he was God. This vision came to, like, an enemy of Israel. It is so odd. And something unprecedented kind of happens in the book of Daniel. In verse 4 of this chapter, the language changes. Have you ever been reading a book, and it's like in English, and then all of a sudden you get to like the second chapter, and it's in French? Oh, all the time. Absolutely. And then you start speaking in tongues, and okay. So from uh, verse 4 of chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 7, the language changes to Aramaic. So the Old Testament is written in what language? Hebrew. Okay, the language of the Jews. But, but these six chapters of Daniel are written in Aramaic. Why? Well, there's been a whole lot of scholarly debate around that, but the most popular theory is the one that I, I think makes the most sense, and it's pretty simple. Aramaic was the most common language of the Middle East at the time. Hebrew was a language spoken primarily just by the Jews, but Aramaic was spoken by everybody. So it's as if the writer is signaling that now God is not just the God of one people or one tribe, one country, one language, one tongue, the, the people of Israel, but he is the God of the entire world. He is the God of all peoples. And another detail that kind of sticks out, and I won't take time to read all the verses, but if you look at like verses 18 and 28 and 37 and 44, there's a name for God that's used over and over by Daniel, and it's the phrase, the God of heaven. But that's a phrase that's really rare in the Old Testament. It's really rare, and yet Daniel wants to make it clear to Nebuchadnezzar that this God is not just Israel's God. He's the God of everything. Like in that day, so here's how it worked. In the ancient world and in that day, every country had their own God or gods. And so every nation evaluated the strength of other nations' gods based on the strength of the nation itself. So the most powerful nation obviously had the most powerful God, okay? And Babylon has just conquered Israel, so do the math. But Daniel insists, my God is the God of heaven. My God is the God of all. He's the Lord of Israel and Babylon and all of earth and all of heaven, and that's a, that's a really good thing, Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to see. It's a really good thing. 
And Daniel's, Daniel's brilliant. He gives Nebuchadnezzar the good news first. Like, you're the head of gold. Pretty cool. But then he gets to the hard truth. The statue has feet of clay, and one day it's all coming down. So, like, feel the tension in the room. Here's the most powerful man in the world, Nebuchadnezzar, who would, without batting an eye, kill Daniel if he was offended in the slightest. And Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to die. And your kingdom is going to be swept away without a trace. You are not a god. But the God of heaven has given you this kingdom, and he's given you this dream, and he's given you this interpretation, and he's real, and he's good, and he's involved right here in Babylon. And that's a really, really good thing. Verse 46. Then Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Like he falls down in a posture of worship toward Daniel. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. So somehow, Nebuchadnezzar begins to open his heart to the God of heaven. Now, is he like a full-fledged believer at this point? Not likely, and we're going to see that in the coming weeks. I mean, this is like a seed. But Daniel refuses to give up on him because he knows that the God of heaven is at work, even on old Nebuchadnezzar. And people's spiritual journeys are rarely just straight up the ladder. Yes, it's usually two steps forward, one back, three steps forward, four back, whatever. And Daniel knows that God is up to something and he's eager to play his part in it. And this is the beauty, you guys, this is the beauty of being a creative minority that's living in in exile. And let's make no mistake, we are in exile as followers of Jesus. We are a minority. Um, So this last week, Jen was playing soccer and that's like become her thing. She loves it. And... um, which is awesome because she didn't grow up playing at all. She just started playing a few years ago. Um, And so she plays indoor, she plays outdoor, she gets picked up by other teams to play, she plays three games in one night. It's just like, and uh, she loves the exercise, but for her the main thing is she, mostly she loves the relationships. So it just enables her to connect with people of all kinds, especially people outside the church. So soccer has become like a mission field of sorts for her. So on Thursday, Jen got picked up. Um, she had a game up in Mill Creek um, at the indoor arena up there, but she got picked up by another team to play because they were short. And so she was just going to help out. So she's uh, there and she's, you know, they're getting ready to play. And she's talking with one of the ladies that's on the team. And we'll, we'll just call her Nikki. Uh, and by the way, that is a fake name. Um, but so Nikki is meeting Jen like for the first time and she's giving Jen the lay of the land. Um, she's telling Jen about all the different people on the team in a very gossipy way. Uh, I just learned, maybe some of you know this, that when you kind of sit down with the ladies and you get the news, it's called getting the tea. <laughs> Did you just learn that too, Gerard? <laughs> Dang it, that's cool, man. I, I, I knew you were cool. <laughs> so my girls are always trying to keep me hip and cool, and it, as you can see, it doesn't work. But uh, every once in a while, they give me something like, oh, I'm going to hang on to that. So Kate just went down to, to her last weekend. She went down to visit people from college, and she got the tea. <laughs> okay, so Nikki, Nikki grabs Jen, who's a stranger to her, and gives her the tea on the team. And part of her description <laughs> went like this. Yeah, so, you know, the keeper and his, like, friend... They're totally weird. They're like super religious. Okay, now Nikki knows nothing about Jen, but she just continues on. Jen's like, hmm? They're like, yeah, they're, they're so religious. You get, you get this. They're so religious that they sit in circles and like read the Bible and talk about it. They actually do that. Can you believe that? There are still people in this world that do that, like with the Bible. It's just, and she's, she's, she's like, they just do weird stuff. And it is, it is freaking crazy. Only she didn't say freaking. 
Oh, and get this, she says, get this. They're both virgins. She's like, that is just messed up. Only she didn't say messed. But they, they literally, those guys literally sit in circles, reading the Bible, talking with other people. Can you freaking believe it? And Jen's like, huh. Yeah, that's so weird. <laughs> no, she, she didn't know what to say. She was kind of like, so she just sat there and was like. <laughs> and there's another lady that was sort of right there with this conversation that knows Jen, and she's just making eyes at Jen. She's like, you know, like, awkward. <laughs> but the funny thing is, this wasn't really offensive. F-bombs, S-bombs, whatever it was. It wasn't that, it was really not shocking or offensive for Jen. I mean, like, she's wanting to go play soccer with people outside the church. Like, this is what you expect, because this is our world. And, and, and she's, God loves Nikki and the, the millions that are like her. And God is at work at Arena Sports in Mill Creek. And so Jen is committed to keeping her eyes up and building bridges and just seeing what God might do among all those relationships there, including Nikki. But this is, this is a just, you guys, it's a fantastic recent example of what this series is all about. Our culture has drastically shifted. Like, we are not in Kansas anymore. And so in week one of this series, uh, we saw like three shifts for the church, right? From the majority to the minority. From a, a place of honor to a place of shame. And from widespread tolerance to now this rising hostility. And so for many of us, trying to follow Jesus in the greater Seattle, it, the felt experience is, is, is like exile. I mean, the, the culture is becoming increasingly foreign and increasingly hostile. And so I just want to acknowledge what some of you might be feeling as we, as we talk about some of this stuff. Because maybe for you, trying to be a creative minority just sounds like a pipe dream. I mean, you look at the, the power of the cultural tide that is just rolling right now, and then you evaluate yourself in terms of all of your limitations, and there's a voice that is inside you saying, influence the culture. Are you freaking serious? And that was just a freaking, by the way. Are you freaking serious? No, like, you gotta just survive. Uh, maybe for some, there are, maybe there are voices whispering stuff like this. You know, I'm sorry, but you're just not, not the kind of person that changes things. I mean, you're a mess. Last Sunday, you came to church, and you vowed to, to not do the thing you do anymore, and then you did it again. All week, in fact. You can't change the culture. You can't even change you. Like, there's a voice in all of us that tells us a version of the way that things are. But here's the catch. What you think about yourself only begins becoming reality when you agree that that voice is true. If you disagree with the voice, it vanishes. I mean, think about the famous words of Jesus, right? You will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The word truth can also, another way to translate that is just reality. So another way you could say it is, you will know reality, and reality will set you free. So whichever reality you agree with, that's the one that you're going to begin living into. So if you're sitting here this morning and you, and you just feel like you're a mess and that's all you are and that's all you'll ever be and you can't change yourself, let alone have any real impact on the world, then according to Jesus, what's happened is you've begun to agree with the wrong reality. And we all have internal voices. I mean, most of us have, have many. We have the voices of our parents and our friends and our enemies. We have the voices of the music we listen to and the media that we take in. Oh, and there's the, the voice of the father of lies telling you what's true about you, feeding you lies about yourself and about reality. And, and with all of that, it's, it's easy to just kind of be the sum of what we think other people think we are. 
It's, it's, it's our, our perception of their actions and their, what we think their thoughts are toward us. And then we make decisions based on what we think they think. And living this way is what Jesus called the fear of man. But Jesus said there is, there is a different way. To, to let the Father tell you who you are. To let the Son tell you who you are. And, and this is a big part of how you know reality and you let it set you free. So, for example, I mean, I could give you, I could give you guys, we could be here all week. I could give you examples on this. But one, John 15, Jesus says, this is who you are. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Okay, how many of you wake up in the morning and say, friend of God, feels good. Like, this is just the reality of my life. Let's go. I think if we're honest, for, for more of us, it's kind of like, ah, another day. I suck. And so God is like, no, actually, you're my friend. And you know what I do with friends? I tell them secrets. I reveal mysteries. I tell them about what I'm doing. I tell them about how I'm moving. I tell them about who they are. And this is who you are. You are a friend. But see, if you don't believe you're God's friend, then you just, you don't live into that. Here's another one. First uh, John 1, 3. John writes, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You, you are a child of God. His love for you is patient and enduring. You think of the best example of any human father that you have ever seen, and it pales in comparison for the love and the devotion of our Heavenly Father. And John insists, this is who he is, this is who you are, and this is reality, and so you can begin living into it. And for some of you, you, you need these kinds of realities to set in and set you free. You need to ignore any voice that's telling you a different story and simply trust and believe what God says about you and just let it settle into, your, into your, the marrow of your bones. I just want to close with, uh, with one final thought. Daniel did amazing things, and he did them in partnership with God. But Daniel had profound clarity about the reality of God and himself. And he refused to put all of the weight on his own shoulders. He held this belief that freed him to live with both humility and confidence. And it went like this. In heaven, there is this great big God. An infinite God so big that watching over this planet is no trouble for him. And he never has a sleep problem. And he's never troubled by anxious thoughts or bad dreams. And not only that, but this God, whose kingdom will one day come to earth, has a direct relationship with me. I'm not God. I'm just one of many. I'm not God, but I'm God's friend. I'm God's child. Therefore, it doesn't matter if I'm just a lowly political prisoner and this king is the most powerful man on the face of the earth. I don't have to promote myself. I don't have to try to make sure that I get credit for lots of stuff because God knows and God sees and God is working. There is a God in heaven, but he's not just in heaven. He's right here and he knows and he cares. I'm not God. I'm just his real good friend. And he's working in me and around me. And if I keep my head up in the world, he's going to use me. And so Daniel's life is filled with like humility instead of self-preoccupation, with confidence instead of anxiety and personal inadequacy, with unshakable, this unshakable spirit of courage, not timidity and fear. And Daniel just had good clarity around a single idea. I'm not God. I'm just his real good friend. And so here's how, here's how this part of the story ends. Nebuchadnezzar falls prostrate before Daniel in this worship posture. And then this happens. Verse 48. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. 
Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. You guys, Daniel becomes vice president of Babylon. All of this because God is always on the move. Even in Babylon, God is working. And I just, I just want to close by saying, you may be facing stuff in your life right now that's over your head. Maybe it has to do with a relationship, maybe with your job, maybe with your kids. Maybe right now there's a lot of uncertainty about your future. I don't know what it may be, but whatever it is, you can face it with confidence knowing that it's not all up to you, right? Because you are not God. You're just his real good friend. And because he's working on your behalf, you have no idea what lies ahead. Now, I'm not saying, okay, I'm far from, please don't, this is not a health and wealth prosperity gospel thing. I'm not saying that if you gather your friends and you guys do like an all-night prayer vigil tonight, you can be vice president by the end of the week. I am saying the weight of the world is not on you because God is real, he's good, and he's at work. And you are in his grip and you will be from now through all eternity. And he's working in ways that you don't see all the time to bring about beautiful things. You're not alone. There is a God and he does live among among human beings. God, I thank you just for the power of the simple idea that the weight of the world is not on us. We don't have to fix everything. We don't have to climb, manipulate, impress. We don't, we don't need to do any of that. We, we live our life. We do the things that you're calling us to do, and we let the chips fall where the chips fall because you're up to something so much bigger and better than anything we can imagine. And whatever it is that we're facing, we're not on our own as we face it. And that, that enables impossible things to become possible. And it and enables ugly things to become beautiful. And it means that you can use us as a creative minority as we come together to go into our world and actually make a huge difference. But help us to let go of the the stories that we rehearse over and over again. You're a mess. You're not good enough. You can't do anything. You're you're not, this isn't real for you. You're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. Help us to let go of all of that and simply say, God, you're inviting me to walk with you, to be empowered by you, and to do something significant in this world. Help us to live with our head up and be on the watch. Amen.